Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everyone, uh, this is Lucas Banyo. I'm an investor here at Village Global. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. Our guest today is Samuel Shah. Samuel is a co-founder and partner at Haystack, also a venture partner at Lightspeed. Prior to Lightspeed, he was also a venture partner at GGV and at Bullpen Capital. Samuel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucas. So Samuel, first of all, congratulations. You just announced uh, Haystack 5 a couple months ago, uh, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, a $50 million fund. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more uh, about the fund and, and how was the raise, uh, the raise process? I'm not sure if you said 15 or 50, although I'd, you know that could be the size of an of a investment round these days. But it's, it's 5-0. It's the same as our previous fund. And the raise, we, we closed it in May of 2021. So really, it's you know, I have to say thanks to our team who put it together and then all the LPs who supported us during, you know, during COVID and doing the fundraise over Zoom. It's not normal for them to do that. And um, I think for where we focus, $50 million, even though it's small in the grand scheme of the headlines we read, to us feels like more money than God because we're just investing early and in really in people uh, early. And so it came together pretty quickly in that sense. And we spent a lot of time previewing it for people that we built relationships with over three or five years. Uh, and I think we were rewarded for that, you know, previewing it and not making it a rush process. And also like consistency of, of investments and the sizing and the valuations over a longer period of time. So you know, we just feel very fortunate. And yeah, we just made our first uh, couple of commitments out of the new fund, which, you know, technically was, quote, cracked open January 1st. Congratulations. And it sounds like you really found your ideal fit or strategy by, by maintaining the same size of the fund as opposed to growing more and more, which we've seen a lot of the a lot of other seed funds do. Can you say a little bit more about your process to getting there and maybe some mistakes you've made along the way? Do you mean process to getting to like what's the right fund size number? That's correct. You, you know, I'd say it's it's probably more art than science, but there's a couple of like prevailing forces. Like if you're a meteorologist and you're trying to study the weather, you know, and you're looking at okay, what's is there a high pressure system or low pressure system, and which way is the wind blowing? And there's a lot of that here, you know. So what I'd say first is just the amount of capital in the market. And the interest in investing in new technologies, new marketplaces, all these kind of things that have network effects, is only growing every every single day, right? From the you know from the first time I met you, right, like three years ago, it's just a constant drumbeat, right, daily. And so my feeling was that that that's one that's one sort of high pressure system. The other one is that the the startup generations of people starting companies now, the whole canon of how to do it, how to fundraise, what to look out for, um, to get smarter when you're a founder, all of that is online or on YouTube and very accessible. Um, not just in founder telegram networks, it's just on Paul Graham's blog everywhere. And so my feeling was that um, one of the one of the prevailing forces in, in the 
ecosystem is that there, there's going to be an intense fight for ownership. So when I started about nine years ago, it was common for, you know, big branded VC firms to get 20% ownership at Series A and maybe 10 to 15% ownership at Series B. That doesn't really happen anymore because founders care, you know, on the, on the whole seem to care more about managing to a target dilution than anything else. And so I thought, you know, as you look at the fund venture math, I always use this heuristic that if you're managing a fund under $10 million, uh, you know, let's say an early stage fund, you don't really need a model and you don't need to be too disciplined about what it is. You just need to do good deals. Then I always thought, okay, well, if you're managing between 10 and $50 million, you need to kind of own five to 10 points of your best companies at exit, even given all the dilution in order to have a chance to drive a multiple. And then I always thought, okay, if, if you're going over 50 million or you're going towards a hundred or even more, you not only have to be right a lot, and we can talk about the shots on goal piece, but you have to own a lot of the companies that exit in an environment where people are competing like crazy to own as much as they can of the best companies. The final piece is just the shots on goal. Like having done this business now for nine years and seeing you know, number of companies go from two people to like a hyper growth company. It, it was pretty clear to me that even in the series B rounds where you would say, okay, a board member's already come in, priced around at the A and the company's doing well, that even the investors leading the series Bs didn't really know what the shape of the outcome would be. So if the series B investors don't know, how can pre-seed and seed investors know? And so because of that, it's kind of an optimization between how many good shots on goal can you take as a fund manager, uh, given as a reflection of, of our network at Haystack? What's the amount of ownership we can reasonably ask for from the founders that they will be willing to talk to us and have us along for the ride? And like, what's the amount of capital that we need to write two to three checks in the companies that graduate from pre-seed to seed or from seed to A? And, and I'm, I'm a big believer in constraints. And so you could, you could use a lot of different math to come out to somewhere between 40 and $75 million. And I, I kind of settled on 50 in order to like make it a round number, uh, to sleep at night, to have reserves, but to still be constrained. So ho- hopefully that answers your question. I'm happy to double click on any of those. Absolutely. So I'm curious, tactically, does that mean that you have, you know, a standard allocation for what you consider to be, you know, a standard haystack deal uh, where you're going to lead or follow and then reserves for a couple of follow-ons and and then perhaps a few, a bucket for a few exceptions, perhaps like the the small check on on the hot round? Is, Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, more or less. I mean, I, I don't think we try to be too prescriptive about, you know, something has to fit perfectly because, you know, it's kind of cliche, but everything is about exceptions and when to break the rules. So what I would say is typically, if you look at the rounds that we've done, the total capital into the company is somewhere between 500K and 3 million in that um, round. And we like to keep it in that zone. So we've done a couple that are like, you know, $4 million seed rounds. But I would say if I, if I thought about those, uh, those rounds, the founders were exceptional, the syndicate was exceptional, and the company typically already had like a product or MVP in market. 
And so there was something to kind of look at where there's evidence of like building and shipping and even in some cases, customers. So, you know, we try to keep it between 500K and 3 million, but sometimes there are exceptions. I, I would say in the last fund, maybe there's like four or five of them that broke that rule. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. When it comes uh, to the deployment cycle, how do you think about time diversification um, across multiple funds? I think especially in 2021, we've seen so many seed funds that raise entire funds and deployed within three to six months. Uh, wh- wh- how, how do you think about that? Yeah, there are a number of ways to think about it. So I can only share what I think I've settled on, but I, I don't want to proclaim that it's the right answer, you know? Um, and I've, I've gone through like, you know how people go through stages of grief. I've gone through stages of of like um, thinking about where I land on this issue. So for the first, I want to say like three years of investing, I just didn't know what time diversification was at all. Didn't pay attention to it. Didn't know what it meant. No idea. For our funds three and four, as I started to learn about it, and I'll share what I learned, I really wanted to try to make each fund a two-year initial deployment, meaning, okay, we started them in like August or September, and we finished writing the initial checks two years from that date. That was really important to me to just see if I could do it. And then in our last fund, fund five, it was like basically 29 months or 30 months, two and a half years of initial deployment. I, I kind of told LPs I'd like to do it two and a half to three. So I really wanted to get as close to that as possible. So a couple of caveats. I think at seed, time diversification is a little bit different than at other stages of the market. And so I think at seed, it feels reasonable for an institutional pre-seed or seed fund to have their initial deployment period be somewhere between two to three years. I think obviously there, there are famous examples of like IA Ventures and those guys or floodgates earlier funds where they went longer and they did really, really well. I think it's hard to separate out. Are they just really good investors, which they are? Or does the time diversification matter and help with pacing? I think there's no way to answer that question. But the best argument I've heard about, and then I'll offer a warning, the best argument I've heard for at least being thoughtful about time diversification uh, came from an investor who's an LP at Cross Creek. And I'm going to paraphrase this. I don't have the exact data. But they said, like, looking at economic cycles and corrections in the, in capital markets, like, even if there's a minor SaaS correction or whatever, that if you have an, if you have a longer initial investment period or quote time diversity, you give each vintage of a fund a better chance at having valuations that are lower, um, you know, during the six to twelve month period. So if you if you raise and deploy really really quickly, and you don't have a strong capital base that understands that strategy, a number of problems can creep up. One is you may be catching vintages at the wrong time. Two is you may have to go back to individual LPs who could be more fickle. And then three, you have to start asking people for money before there's real evidence that what you're doing is working. And so just to round out your question, Lucas, with a lot of new investors coming on in AngelList, which I think is great, and a lot of new investors being really excited about technology, which is great, and the pre-seed and angel sort of market of this is where people start because there's no barrier to entry, which is great. People who blow through their funds really quickly 
who actually really want to build a franchise or at least have successive funds, maybe um, like reducing their chances of success in doing that because there's not enough of a checkpoint in between for the capital to say, yeah, I want to keep investing in you because the money keeps coming back or I can see the money keep coming back, right? I think it also sends a softer signal about to, to LPs and especially institutional LPs that like, hey, this can be someone who's too loose and I can't trust them with their money. And I think once you lose, once you have that branding in the eyes of professional LP, it's very hard to reset that. The final thing I would say is that like technology um, and, and this early stage investing can be so accretive that someone could just do two funds in a year, do two six month funds and have an amazing track record in that just 12 months of investing, keep the funds really small and make enough money, you know, more money than other people would make, you know, spending 30 years at GE or something, you know what I mean? And so it just depends what someone's trying to optimize for. But I would say that if people are trying to like get to a fund two and fund three and grow their funds even modestly, investing funds in six months is basically like a death march. Fascinating. And um, you mentioned that you didn't think about time diversification at all in your first couple of years. Are there other concepts that you really value and and think a lot about today that you totally overlooked or didn't really appreciate on your first few years? Yeah. So number one, well, I'm sorry, in no particular order, time diversity, although I think I figured out the logic for why it's a positive thing to have time diversity pretty quickly once I realized the benefit of it. Uh, Two would be portfolio construction. Now I really struggled with this because any manager going to a institutional LP who knows what they're doing will have to be able to discuss portfolio construction. I've written about this topic a lot in my blog and other podcasts. And basically it's like a test. It's sort of like, okay, Lucas, if you're in graduate school and you're defending your dissertation on, uh, you know, the, the microeconomics of Miami over the, the last century. You can't really prepare for your dissertation defense. You either know it by that point or you don't, right? And I think there's a similar analogy to talking to LPs about portfolio construction. If you can't construct what you think a portfolio is and defend it, me, meaning like in a fluent language, they're just going to think you don't know it. So that would be two. I think understanding how to make follow-on investments and getting in position to make follow-on investments is not something I appreciated at all. Um, And that's related to dilution. I think it was really hard to understand the gravity of what the dilution is. And I've written about this too, because as an early stage investor, your positions are small, you don't have information rights, you may not have a back office that's going to track the price per share. And so it all kind of compounds. And so the line I kind of use about this is that like, the only way to learn this kind of stuff, meaning like the impact of dilution and how to get in position for future rounds, is is um, can only be learned through experiencing it firsthand and experiencing the pain of screwing it up. Right. And what about the flip question? I, I'm curious, are there any concepts that you thought were really important when you were first starting out that you actually don't think matter as much today? Yes. And this is very specific to me, but I thought that it would be smart to say, hey, I invest in marketplaces and I invest in uh, consumer networks and I invest in this. And um, 
not that it's a bad thing, but I thought that like that would help me get to good investments and maybe it did and maybe didn't. But if I look back at all of them, it's like I met a lot of people and we call it kind of kissing frogs, you know, from the fairy tale. And then you meet some people who are just more electric or more interesting than other people on the margin and you follow them. <laughs> and that tends to lead in in our case to to better investments, not because there was some thesis or some market we were looking at. And so probably probably that would be something I felt like for the early, early stage was not not useful. Um, there's a side discussion to have about like raising sector focused funds and how it's easier to raise from LPs or not. I mean, I don't know. I think if you raised a Bitcoin sector fund or a crypto sector fund for a host of reasons, those people have been rewarded for it. But there's a lot of other examples and other sector funds where I'm just not even sure they'll get passed upon one or two. Right. To talk a little bit more about the LP fundraising, are what are the most common mistakes that new fund managers make when it comes to fundraising for their first few funds? And it may be that we just cover them when talking about the time diversity and portfolio construction, but I'm curious if, if there would be anything else. I mean, Lucas, we could talk for straight 90 minutes about all the mistakes people make about trying to raise capital. <laughs> Do you mean like trying to raise institutional funds, like having like real LPs, or do you just mean raising funds, period? I guess perhaps a better way to frame this question would be, you know, if you're starting out again, if you could talk to yourself nine years ago when mm-hmm. initially trying to raise these funds, what what could you tell yourself to make that process less painful? Yeah, I think I would answer that question differently. I, to me, it's two different questions. Sorry to be semantic, but like for me, there's nothing else I could have done. I mean, because I really had to fight for every LP dollar like really hard. And so I'm not sure what I could have done coming out of nowhere. You know, I literally turned over every stone possible. So I I don't think there's anything I could have done. I almost think it's just like a miracle I'm sitting here. (laughs) But I see a lot of people now do it or they contact me. And I see a lot of people making a lot of dumb mistakes and making a lot of naive assumptions. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about that, but I don't, I don't know if my path is instructive for other people other than if they want to experience the pain secondhand. <laughs> <laughs> and can you maybe talk a little bit about what are some of those common naive mistakes yeah. that, that you see often? Yeah, there, there's a bunch of tactical, you know, what I would call tactical kind of rookie mistakes. And then there are like some bigger, hairier like, oh God, I don't know if you can fix that mistakes. Okay. So on the tactical ones, it's not getting someone to help you create like a professional deck, not having your data organized, not having a clear message in the deck about who the GPs are and why they're in a good position uh, to, to invest inside their networks sending the deck via any other method than PDF, asking tons of people for intros who don't even know you, have never done a deal with you, trying to treat LPs like an ATM and and sort of think of capital raise like a a startup would think about raising capital. It's totally different. And just a general feeling of like um, entitlement around it. So so there, there are just 99 tactical common mistakes I see 
for example, even with people I know really well who ask for an intro to someone or, or want me to pass along to LPs, and I do this from time to time to people, you know, I just won't send them a dachshund link. I just refuse to do it because I know the LPs won't look at it. But, you know, people will push back. You know, people will call me, ask me for my help. I'll help them. Then I'll offer to make those intros and then they'll reject my advice. So it's just kind of, I guess, humorous at the end of the day, but I just stick to my guns on that. Then there are like the big hairy mistakes, which are um, raising a lot of money, but not knowing time diversification or portfolio construction, not having like taken some risks on their own, not like starting with a smaller fund. Like I, I've met a lot of people who just felt like, you know, if I can't raise a $50 million fund, I don't want to do this. Well, you know what? There are a lot of people who have raised million, $5 million, $10 million funds and suffered and built it up over time. And if you're not willing to go through the pain of that, because um, everything is a market, then, you know, why should anyone invest in your fund? So I think that like um, the world in which we live in, Lucas, where we give money to entrepreneurs and there's a lot of money and a lot of entrepreneurs, that's not real life. You know, real life is going to like an investment committee that manages money for a hospital or manages money for like a family office where they're giving you the capital to make blind pool decisions. And I don't think people really understand like how deep a commitment that can be for some others. Right. One of the things I've heard you say before is that you wished you had started developing those relationships with institutional LPs before you did. Tactically, what does building the relationship with an institutional LP means in practice? And, and what are things that you did that worked really well and what didn't work? Yeah, to be clear, I actually, that's not entirely true. And <clears throat> I made the relationships with institutional LPs really early. It just took a long time to convert. What I did was, is like, I took notes. I invited them to give me feedback. I took notes on their feedback. I tried to keep them up to date very briefly over time. And I went to a lot of events where they were there just so I could meet them in person. But again, I probably went on a tougher journey in times of in terms of like the amount of time it took but i i did i did invest in those those relationships very early it just took a long time to sort of tip over and you know for some people it took one or two funds to tip over so that would be like an entrepreneur you know wanting to pitch excel for their seed and excel passes at the seed and then you really want to work with excel and then they pass at the a and then you finally get to the Series B and they say, okay, we're going to come in. You know, most founders will never go back. <laughs> right. And then I, I guess to talk a little bit more about what's happening on the markets today, when, when it comes to managing your LPs, what does the downturn, the downturn we're seeing means for fund managers? Uh, and, and how do you manage that, uh, your portfolio proactively and communicate what's happening that w w with your LPs? Yeah, I mean, I think, when, when COVID happened, which is a more fear-based thing where people just didn't know anything about the virus or treatment or transmissibility, I think a lot of investors did like a full kind of health report for LPs to kind of get ahead of problems and communicate. And it turned out that the market just ripped after three months. So it's like, maybe that was for not, I don't know. And obviously there are some COVID deaths related to startups. Um I think on this one, 
it is a pretty big structural correction. I think for pre-seed and seed, um, our general philosophy with Haystack is just to be radically transparent with LPs, like, you know, and not get into the whole marketing game. I think the types of LPs we've been lucky to attract that we want to keep are people we can call up and be like, hey, this company just, we made a mistake. It's not doing well. And they're not, you know, they don't, they don't really worry about, oh, is Samil telling me the, the truth? I just put it out there. So I think for this one, and we're going through this now, I think the approach is just to like encourage companies to keep, you know, as a CEO and founder, your part of your job description is to keep the company financed. And maybe that means you have to keep the company financed at a rate that, that, that challenges your previous notions about what your company is worth. And so that's the same message we would send to a founder as we would send to an LP. We would say, you know, and I even mentioned this in our last quarterly letter, which is our fund five, which is just in the ground now, has incredible lift in two and a half years. I mean, it could be the best performing fund ever in Haystack. And it has a setup to do that. But I just told them and I said, if you look at the marks, you'll be really excited. But the reality is, is like, I don't know what's going to happen over the next two years in these companies. So we'll just tell you as we know, you know, we're not marking up those deals. Other people are marking up those deals. Um, but I, we don't sit around and say, oh, it's the best fund ever. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's like if 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 you're an LP and you're gonna you're gonna just assume it's gonna be a great fund, then that's that's the LP's problem. Our our job is to just be sober about what we think about the company and the position, um, but we're investing so early that other people are marking it up and we don't have control over what the founder does. So right. I think it's just, these things are just more philosophical for me where it's just easy to be an adult and just say, yeah, you know, this company is a really great company, really great founder. We, we really like it. Is it worth what the last round was? I have no clue. What should you tell your committee? Probably not. It's probably not worth that, you know? But at the same time, the exits in these companies are so random, like you just never know. So I, I think there's there's just very simple answers to this, which is we just don't know. And it's not just revenue too. You can't just say, oh, well, I think that company's good because it has revenue. What if, you know, my uh, GM bought Cruise for $1.2 billion or $1.6 billion, excuse me. I don't think they had revenue. So it's random. Right. Given the massive correction we've seen on, on the public markets over the last few weeks, we've started to hear some tension on the growth stage. It was reported last week, I think, that Tiger was cutting off on, on valuations. Um, how long do you think until this affects this, the seed market? I don't think this affects the seed market uh, really at all. I mean, I think you'll have a little bit of um, maybe people are a little bit more sluggish to invest at seed which is probably a good thing. You know, maybe it's instead of three days, it's five days or something. I think just generally with Omicron, with the start of the year, people sort of always being slow. I think with people sort of tending to their portfolios, maybe it'd be a little bit slower. But if you meet a great entrepreneur and they're raising 800K, why would you bicker over it being six posts or nine posts or 12 posts, depending on what the deal is? Like, I, I just don't see that there's too much money in the system for that to matter. Right. And and if we do go on a prolonged downturn for the next, let's say, uh, 12 to 18 months, 
What implications do you think that this will have for solo GPs and angels? Yeah, so that's where I would be like pretty concerned. So a lot of people come to me and they want to raise a fund. It could be 10 million, it could be 100 million. And the first thing I always tell them is if you don't have a capital partner already to like anchor you or back you in a meaningful way, let's say you're raising $10 million and you don't have a family uh, that's going to give you five just right out of the gate, you're entering a world of pain, right? So now if you extrapolate from that and sort of say, okay, well, a lot of people of these smaller funds, they haven't been proven yet and they have to keep going back to individuals. A majority of those won't have the positioning and credibility to keep going back to those people. And some of those people may end up being fickle about wanting to invest or not. Also, the larger the fund ask, I think people are getting wiser to the fact that it can depress returns. So I think there'll always be a healthy kind of scout market for people doing, you know, let's say sub five or sub $10 million funds. Because people can at least understand that you can drive a return by keeping the funds small. But I think the larger ones that don't convert over into institutional capital and can can be partners with their LPs, at least over two, three, or maybe even more funds, it's going to be hard to keep um, meeting entrepreneurs, making good decisions, and dealing with the money side of like continuing to raise the capital um, when there's so many options. So I do think that that will that would have been harder without a correction in the market um but it'll be heightened because of that right and you wrote an essay over the weekend called the market is the greatest critic one of the things you talked about in that essay is that you believe the and correct me if i'm wrong that you believe that the market will reward companies that have better product diversity can you talk a little bit more about that yeah it's kind of a cliche, but I think the most value in network scale and power accrue to companies that have platforms. You can define a platform in a number of different ways. Um, but you know, it could be that other people can build on top of said platform, or it could be that there's some cross um, fertilization between products across the platform. Uh, you know, Microsoft could be a canonical example of both of these things. And so that like when public market and gr- growth and public market investors are looking for an ability to like be durable at scale, I just don't think they're going to be interested in companies that can be a billion or $10 billion outcomes being a point solution or a one trick pony. I think they're going to want to see people using their scale and their revenue and their stock to be acquisitive, to integrate new products and services. I mean, I think Salesforce, Salesforce is kind of the poster child of this, like, you know, buying Slack and Tableau with, with a huge stock price during the pandemic, Microsoft being very acquisitive. Now it's easy for them to, because they have more cash than God, but look at even Twilio acquired segment, right? So I think Sandeep Pichu from Felicius had a great tweet about this in the last month or so where he said, you know, it's really a shame that a lot of these companies that had really big inflated stock prices through the COVID bubble didn't use their stock as a weapon to like diversify their product line, you know? And so what does that mean for us? Like Lucas, you and I, and see, that's what I was trying to think about in writing that, which is there's no way to know if the next 
investment that we make has any shot because so much has to get get right there. But we will know over time how someone thinks and we'll be investing more across those rounds. And so I think it's something to pay attention to about what can be a platform, which founding teams have that sort of aggregation and integration mindset, you know? And so for me, that's my big takeaway from all this because I can't, I can't imagine a seed market that's not vibrant. I think it's very vibrant. Right. And to talk a little bit more about the state of the seed market, you know, last year, everybody was talk, talking about Tiger. Um, Tiger didn't really affect the seed market um, as much, meaning we're not competing di- directly with Tiger. But one thing that we did see happen quite a bit was the multi-stage funds coming in, coming in earlier and earlier. Could you talk a little bit more about how you think the dynamic of multi-stage funds versus seed-dedicated funds has shifted over the last couple of years? Yeah, I think in 2018, um, I tweeted about this, and then I went on um, Harry Stebbings' podcast, and we just discussed this. And my thesis, not thesis then, the evidence on the ground was that entrepreneurs were voting with their feet, that they wanted to do these slightly bigger seed rounds, and the premium founders, and again, premium founders don't often result in success, but, you know, we're, we're voting for these slightly larger rounds with the name brand firms. You could argue hundred reasons why they get more money. There's a little bit less solution. They get the brand name. They can recruit against it. They make the next round easier, all those sorts of things. I think that that has only intensified since 2018. So now we're coming up on four years. I think the one thing that changes is that going back to your, you know, your question about does the seed market change? And I said it may change from doing deals in three days to five days. I do think the bigger platform funds and branded funds will be a little bit slower because they have more dollars at work and more exposure in other parts of the market that have been more severely corrected. And so there's going to be a digestion period for them to figure out where is the market how do I handle my portfolio companies? I may need to do a down round or something like that, where it's really a material issue. And so I think that creates more opportunities than would have been otherwise for people like you and me. Right. And in your mind, is signaling risk still a thing or is it less relevant nowadays? Oh, boy. So I kind of like, I kind of whiplash on this, honestly. And I see both. I think there's one argument where you basically say, hey, Samuel and Lucas, if you raise, you know, 3 million bucks and you can't do enough with it to then raise the next round, we probably suck as entrepreneurs, <laughs> right? Um, and I think I really believe in that, like on, on the one hand. On the second hand, I think the reality is having been inside a lot of these rooms where people are evaluating a deal and not sharing the following with the entrepreneur, they do wonder why didn't so-and-so just do the next round, especially if they have a huge fund. And when a deal is not obvious, that can make the larger fund feel like they're being played and they would slow it down or possibly even disengage. So I think to answer your question, it's a mixed answer. I think the reality on the ground is that signal risk does exist because I see it happen in real life. By the same token, I think if you raise three to four million bucks, I don't mean this if you raise a million bucks, but if you raise three to four million bucks and then you can't aggregate enough resources and, and make a compelling pitch to the next investor, it might just be time to go home. Right. 
And when you look at the seed landscape today, are there any fund strategies that you think are underrated and perhaps deserve more attention? I think that a lot of people are doing this now, but I don't think the majority, overwhelming majority of them will be successful at it. But I would I would just point to what Eric Rinala and his partners have done with Mucker in LA. They don't do social media. They don't blog. They don't tout their horn. I don't even think Eric does podcasts. And, you know, they've been incubating and preceding and kind of hatching and growing companies that have that have really turned into big things. And when you do that properly early and you just put small dollars behind it and there's no signal risk from your own internal capital, the ownership is quite attractive. So I do think you're seeing people trying to do this more incubation uh, ownership model. I think there are a lot of problems with it, but I think Eric and the team at Mucker have done it really well. I'm sure there are a couple others I don't know about or forgot, but I also know that a lot of people who are going to try will not even have a chance. Absolutely. In in other recent news for for the seed stage, we've seen YC come out with this with a 500k standard offer. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, on what that means for pre-seed funds broadly, and, and and how does that impact Haystack if at all? Um, it doesn't really impact Haystack. I think. The broader math of it um, is important, which is, you know, let's say Lucas and Samil were in YC, and then we, if we accept this 375 uh, note at whatever the market price is for the next note or next round, depending on what's what's the valuation of that round, that that number is already baked into the ownership, so it does create less real estate for other people to invest. So it, it will have an impact. It'll be interesting to see whether founders accept that or not, because YC now will be subject to their own, to the environment as well, which is, you know, they've created an environment. And I mean this in a positive way that they've had a lot of influence around founders being more target pollution sensitive. And they've contributed to more education being made public in a sort of startup canon, if you will. So what if founders say, well, I don't want to accept that condition. I don't want to accept that additional money uh, going in. They may or may not. It remains to be seen. Absolutely. Um, and then final question for you. I know we're running up on time, but um, on a year like 2021, when rounds were getting done within a matter of hours, and then on a year like 2022, where portfolios are down 50% plus, what are things that, that you did to stay sane? I don't, I don't know if I stayed sane, but I think... Um, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky that, you know, we, ha- we have three little kids who, you know, were certainly impacted by the pandemic, but not to the extent other kids, you know, were around the country. So, you know, trying to keep a perspective that like, in a certain way, we were COVID beneficiaries as sort of terrible as that sounds, right? We didn't choose that. Um, but there are day-to-day struggles. So I think it's, you know, having having a partner at home, my wife, who is really excellent with kids and has a huge reservoir of patience. I mean, I think, again, I guess I selected wisely in terms of, you know, sort of life partner. I think uh, I love what I do as work. So even though it was an adjustment for Zoom, because I'm a very social person and I like meeting people in person, once that adjustment was made, it sort of just clicked. And I, I do like this new world of, of doing things over Zoom. 
And then I'm not, I'm, I'm someone who's pretty easily entertained. So if I can, you know, one of the, one of the few hobbies that sort of stayed with me in sort of into adulthood is I, you know, I really enjoy cooking and uh, it's kind of one of the few things I can do where I really don't think about work or think about other things as much. And so if I'm able to cook and sort of like scratch that itch or, or appease that part of my brain and, you know, watch things like the last dance or get into pro sports or spend more time with my kids, even if it can be maddening, I feel pretty satisfied. I mean, I would love to go travel and do all sorts of other things that I feel, you know, cooped up by. Um, and I'm sure that'll happen at some point. But yeah, I mean, I feel like it's just, it was sort of a war of attrition, you know, for everybody. Um, but, but I can't really complain about it either. Definitely. Well, Samuel, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been an awesome conversation. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.